Hi, welcome to the Urban Lifestyle Report, and I'm your host, Carolyn Morris Walker. of the Urban Lifestyle Report, My Legacy Project. It's a platform to exemplify Blacknificence and Black excellence. And I'm your host, Carolyn Morris Walker. Today, I am so thrilled to have with me Grace Cameron, and she's my guest. And she is a phenomenal woman who certainly exemplifies Blacknificence and Black excellence. She is talented in so many areas that include a magazine publication, Caribbean food markets, and she is a fellow podcaster. So happy to have you with me, Grace. Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. This is amazing, and thanks for that great intro. You know what? I embrace it. I I accept it. I embrace it. So thank you. Awesome. So I am delighted when I meet people in my community who are doing amazing and outstanding work in a plethora of areas. They are educators, they are creatives, they're influencers, they're game changers, entrepreneurs, innovators, artists, founders, change makers who are igniting, building, and transforming our community in a variety of ways in so many arenas. They are engaging in these activities full-time, part-time, as a side hustle, and making their passion and visions come to life. And I believe the community needs to hear about you, Grace. Thank you so much. You know, but let me just say, we are an amazing people. We are absolutely amazing, and I couldn't think of a better ancestry, better better background, better genes. We're just amazing. Absolutely. Well, I always say it's a blessing. This melanin, listen, if you don't honor and love it, something wrong with you. Something wrong with you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Grace, you are a communication specialist and a storyteller that drives conversation and engagements across a variety of platforms. And thank you for engaging with me. So you've got a whole heap of talent, content coordinator, copywriter, freelance researcher, writer, workshop presenter, bakery operator. So where would we like to start? Well, you know, at the base of it all, I'm a storyteller. That's what it comes down to and comes back to for me all the time. I mean, growing up in Jamaica, I was always reading I was always that kid in the neighborhood with my face in a book. And where in Jamaica was this? I grew up in Kingston, but I have family um, from St. Thomas as well as St. Catherine. Nice. Big up the Yardy people, them. Brock, brock. Exactly. Exactly. But I was that kid who um, always was reading. In the summertime, I would have spelling 
test for my friends in the neighborhood. I was always writing stories. And so everything for me comes back to telling stories and connecting people with our stories. So that's, that's what I would say. And uh, you have siblings. Where were you in your birth order with your siblings? Just my own curiosity. Yes. So I'm the eldest. I've got five brothers and sisters. I'm the eldest. I have one brother. He and I were born in Jamaica. Unfortunately, he passed away last year, about a year ago. Oh, my condolences. Thanks. And then I have four brothers and sisters who were born in England and who still live there because my parents went to England when my brother and I were infants and left us with our maternal grandmother. So she raised us. And the idea, the intention was that once they got to England and settled down, that they would get my brother and I to join them. But that never quite happened. Okay. So I ended up growing up with my maternal grandmother. When she came to Canada, we followed her about a year or two later. I started high school in Jamaica, but ever since then, my early teens, I've been in Toronto or in Canada anyway. Oh, so you ended up growing up with your maternal grandmother? Yes. Okay. So tell me about Jamaican eat magazine because that's how we got connected (laughs) yes so jamaican eats magazine started when so i grew up in toronto went to high school here went to university here and so on um to vancouver at the end of 1997 what precipitated the move to vancouver I used to work um, for a company and used to go on business trips to Vancouver. And every time I got off the plane, I would look at the mountains and they would remind me of Jamaica. And so I decided that after I would leave the corporate world, because I knew I wasn't going to stay there for very long, that I would move to Vancouver. And so when I was ready, I packed up my little blue Toyota Tercel with my black trunk on the back seat and drove from Toronto to Vancouver. By yourself? By myself. It took me seven days, but I planned out my trip. And so every night I knew where I would stop. And I was in Calgary a couple of days because I was meeting somebody there. And then I went on to Vancouver. So I drove from Toronto by myself to Vancouver because I decided I wanted to go there. So you're fearless. Well, it was also, let me just say, it was just after my grandmother died. And so that was in 1991. And for me, home was where my grandmother was. Right. And so when she died, for me, yes, Toronto was home, but it didn't feel, I didn't feel that urge to stay here any longer. And I realized in that seven day drive to Vancouver, I was, I was mourning. I cried half the way there. So that was what pushed me, as well as thinking I could live here because of the mountains. Right. Well, I have a similar story. My brother passed away in 1995, and I ended up moving to Japan in 1997, because between those two years, all kinds of things were going on, failed business venture, also dealing with the grief of my brother. 
and packed up and went and lived in Japan for three years as a teacher. Sometimes it's that reinventing yourself, getting grounded with yourself. And what better way to do that than in a place where you really have no ties and you really have to come together with you and find your way. Absolutely. So I was in Vancouver for quite a while, well, for a few years. And then I decided I wanted to move to Jamaica, move back to Jamaica. So I was in Vancouver probably for about, I don't know, maybe seven years or so. And then now is that when Jamaica Eats magazine came about? No, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) I've moved around a little bit. After about six, seven years in Vancouver, I decided I was moving back to Jamaica with my son, who by then was about three, four years old. And so when I moved back to Jamaica, my background is in journalism. I have a degree from Ryerson. So I started working for the Gleaner newspaper, which is the largest media house in the Caribbean. And as it turned out, after a while, the lifestyle desk was created for me or fell into my lap. And as part of the lifestyle desk, the food section was a part of that. And at the time, the food section was simply the sales for the week. It came out weekly and with maybe somebody writing a story on something. So that came to me and I took it. And along with the graphic designer who was there, we revamped that whole section. Wow. To the point where we won an inter- I won an international award out of Miami. Nice. An award of excellence. Talk about it. An award of excellence, yes. And in addition to that, I had several other sections that were under my responsibility. So I was ahead of the lifestyle desk. And in doing that, and the food section in particular, I am not a cook, but Carolyn, if you tell anyone, I'll have to come looking for you. (laughs) Well, I think the world's about to know. (laughs) (laughs) But what I realize about food and cooking is that it's not merely about eating and nutrition. It's about stories. It's about making connections. It's about breaking bread with people because when you break bread with people, you cannot be enemies. It's about culture. It's about your history. And in doing the food section, number one, that's the Thursday Jamaica Gleaner, the circulation went up. And I was thrilled to see, even in the countryside, because for a while I lived in St. Thomas and would drive to Kingston for work. On a Thursday morning, I'd be driving along and see these guys sitting outside on the street with a Thursday Gleaner reading. In addition to that, the overseas community responded very well because the Gleaner was very quick and very active online in terms of connecting with the diaspora. And so the Gleaner was very well read and I would get messages and emails and so on from readers all over the world about the food section. So it connected. I connected that way. This is really key. This is important. I then wanted to have the food section be more than just a section. I approached someone highly placed in the Gleaner. Why don't we do a food magazine? So that way we could really explore this more. And the person thought about it, they whatever, and then decided, you know, but what if it doesn't work? And that answer to me was just so, it was unbelievable that that was the answer. Naysayers. 
So then I decided I'm going to start my own food, food magazine. So I did some research, connected with friends who lived in different parts of the world, asked what they thought if they would read it, got a good response and thought, I'm going to do this. Wow. Keep going. This is a beautiful story. I'm loving it. Yes. Yeah, so that's how it started. I you know, did the usual because, again, as one of the editors at The Gleaner, at the time also I was teaching. So I was teaching at Northern Caribbean University in Mandeville. So I would drive there two days a week to teach in the mornings and then drive to the Gleaner in the afternoon to do my work. I was also teaching at, I think it might have been one morning a week at Carimac, the communications journalism school at UWE in Kingston. So I was teaching writing there as well. So I was teaching at two universities as well as the Gleaner and starting the magazine. So plate full. <laughs> so it was too much. So I thought, you know, I had to give up one of them. So I gave up the Gleaner to concentrate on the magazine. And I also gave up teaching in Mandeville as well, because again, it was just so much. And so I did that to concentrate on the magazine. Um, so I knew people, I had some connections, you know, and got that going in terms of advertising, in terms of printing, in terms of subscription, building a base and so on. And so I put what I knew to use, put my contacts to use and just started. That's so awesome. Thank you. Yeah, because from what I read, it was an idea and it launched nine months after the idea came to you. So what drove you? Like, what was driving you to get this done? I realized that no, there was no such publication out there. There was a niche. Nobody was. And still that market, there is really nobody else in that space but myself. And even in terms of Caribbean food today, there are some North Africans who are in that space, but not really us. I didn't realize that back then. I just realized that nobody else was doing this. I thought it was such a good idea. In fact, I was so inspired that I would bolt upright in bed late at night and be jotting down ideas. I just could not let it go. I felt it to my core that this was something that I needed to do. And it meant putting everything on the line, but I was ready to do it because it's either you're going to do it or you're not. Right. After I left the Gleaner, that there were actually some of my colleagues at, or ex-colleagues at the Gleaner who were taking bets that, oh, well, she did the first one. I bet she can't come out with a second one. Shocking. So I realized there were all those naysayers out there. But let me also say that I am extremely grateful and blessed because I felt a ring around me of supportive faces. So I felt surrounded by that and the naysayers were beyond that. So I didn't have to concentrate on those people. I could concentrate on the ones who were cheering me on. And so I felt extremely blessed by that. You know what I love about you? The naysayers that didn't want to support you, but you couldn't let it go. And sometimes it's that burning desire in your gut, in your spirit that says you you have to do it. And I like that you were not deterred 
by the what if it doesn't work, which is a terrible position to start from, isn't it? Because we have to start from the position, this is going to work, let's see what happens. And that's a great mindset to have as well, because the energy it takes to be focusing on the naysayer, that's energy you put into making yourself successful and making the magazine real. And how long has Jamaican Eats magazine been around? When did it actually launch? So I launched it in 2006. Now, as a journalist, as a storyteller, all of that was good. I loved doing it, still love doing it. It always brings joy to me whenever I'm doing it. Business-wise, I was not the best business person or the best in terms of mapping out certain logistics or strategies and so on. I started out maybe, I wouldn't say too big, but started out with always a best case scenario when I might have scaled it back a little bit and then ramped up. But you know, it's what I knew how to do at the time. It's what got me started. So I don't regret it. So I started it in 2006 and I actually went to Atlanta to launch it. (laughs) There's a Caribbean festival in Atlanta. I had a friend who lived in Atlanta. And so My son and I went, we stayed with her, we signed up to go to that Caribbean festival, and we had magazines to sell. (laughs) So we did that, and my son was an amazing salesperson. He was about 11 by that time, so he ran around selling magazines, and we did well enough. I mean, we didn't sell the thousands that I was envisioning, because again, however, it was a good way to get out there and so on. So that started it um, in terms of that. Then my next trip after that, maybe a month or so later, was to go to Washington, D.C. Again to another event there because I realized the diaspora was very interested in the magazine. Hence my reason for doing that. So we went to Washington, D.C., which was a two-day event and did miserably in terms of sales on the first day. However... We kind of anticipated that because we were told the first day is not when you would make your sales. It would be day number two. Day number two from the night before it rained and it rained at one of the worst flooding in Washington, D.C. in ages. It rained. So when we showed up to the event site, I mean, basically they had to cancel it because there was no way we could do that. So that that really, I felt crushed because it meant not even recouping my cost to go there. So it was, it was very challenging. It was tough. It was tough. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm loving your story. You're giving me goosebumps. Oh, and so that was the physical magazine. When did you start the online presence for the magazine? Or was there always an online presence? No, there wasn't always. Because when I started in 2006, the internet has grown. And the whole digital um, publishing and marketing and social media has exploded the last number of years. So when I started in 2006, it wasn't really, it was just a hard copy magazine and that was it. But as I went along and discovered social media and the digital magazine, I slowly incorporated some of that. Okay. I think in 2009, I created 
a Facebook group because somebody told me I should do it. I just did it because I didn't understand why. In 2010, I believe, that was when I started looking at digital. And in fact, wanted to have the magazine as a digital-only magazine. But readers rebelled. They did not want it. Or they didn't mind having it as a backup. Some people would like it as the only publication, but most people wanted the traditional magazine because they wanted to be able to touch the pages and to see the pictures when they wanted it. And I must say, we have phenomenal pictures and people love it for that. Okay. I was on the website and it was beautiful looking at it on the laptop, but I am old school I don't want no ebook. <laughs> I don't want no digital magazine. I like it that, yes, maybe for quick reference, but as you have said earlier, there is a psychology behind touching a book, a magazine, the sound of the flipping of the pages, the text on the page. There's this whole thing that goes with it. And so for me, I have magazines here. I just threw out like the 2015 and 16 IKEA catalog. I had to let them go. I was like, come on, Carolyn. I have like Essence magazine from 15, 20 years ago, and nobody could get me to get rid of those because I feel like they're historical. They have text and down the road, they're going to be referring back to Jamaican Eats magazine this is what it looked like when it, in the physical form. So That's right. And there are also some subject matter. If it's just a straightforward news magazine, maybe consuming it as a digital may be more palatable. But when it comes to something like food and fashion, where the colors are so important and the layout and the design, most people, even the younger folks, they want the hard copy thing that they can turn the pages. Absolutely. I totally get it. So, you know, just just to round up. So that happened in 2009. I moved, I, you know, had been living in Jamaica and I decided to come back to Canada. But going back to Vancouver instead of um, Toronto, where I was brought up. Mm -hmm. And a couple of things happened there or around that period of time. I had really started growing the magazine, working with someone out of the UK who was between Birmingham and London. And the idea was we were working towards some kind of partnership, working towards doing certain things and just growing it. And it turned out that this person was a total scam artist and tried to take out, tried to take, actually started a magazine with the same name, ripped off just about everything um, that he could to do his own thing in London because I found him to be very dishonest. And I decided I did not want to go that way. So because of that, that was a little bit of a setback because I had to sort of re regroup. And although I had several lawyers that I know said to me, you know, Grace, there is reciprocity between Jamaica and the UK. We can go after him if you want. Mm -hmm. But I decided not to do that. So that was a little bit of a setback. Moving at the same time to be here also sort of threw things 
you know, off kilter a little bit. So I found myself um, starting anew in many ways or playing catch up or figuring out how to keep it going. Why is this publication important? Why is it important that we have publications like Jamaican Eats Magazine? It's absolutely important because we get to tell our stories in the way that we want it to be told. It's coming from us because, again, the story, for example, of Hardo Bread, a master baker that I featured with Hardo Bread said to me, Hardo Bread is almost like the history or symbolic of Jamaicans. It's very tough and hard, but it tastes good. In terms of getting that dough as hard as it is, it has to be compressed and it has to be worked. Mm. It's not like the light, fluffy white bread. So he said to me, and I hadn't thought about it that way, that that even tells the story of us Jamaicans. For real. So yeah, so food tells our stories. It connects us as a people. In my doing this magazine, I'm glad you asked that question because one of the things that that was important to me was we get to control the narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of people telling us who we are or telling us how they think we should be or playing back their fantasies of us, this is one way of us. We're telling our own stories and it's hard work. It's fun. It's playful. We're all of that. It's bright. It tastes good. And yeah, we tell our own stories. We get to, we get to control that narrative. And that's really, really important that we tell our own stories, that we get our children and our children's children to see us from how we see ourselves and to see the value and the beauty. Yes, they will see the struggle, but there's so many things in there. There's so many layers. There's so many textures. We're not just a one note kind of piece. So it was important for me to do that. Yeah. That's multidimensional people. And I also think, too, is that it brings also the connection of similarities that these that different Caribbean islands have. I didn't get to Jamaica until I was 22 years old. I was my parents were are Jamaican and they went to England in the 50s. And I grew up knowing everything Jamaican because our community was that close growing up to the point that when I came to Canada, I didn't even know I was English. I thought I was Jamaican. I had no idea. And I remember when I got off the plane, I laid on the tarmac practically and started to cry. Oh. Because I couldn't believe, and I'd gotten married and my husband was Jamaican. And so there was no doubt where the honeymoon was going to be. Like, And that also pushed me that when my son was born, I would say from the time he was about seven until he was about 11, every summer, Friday got, school got out on Friday. He was on the plane to Jamaica on Saturday. (laughs) School started Monday. He was on the plane on Friday coming back to Toronto. And I have a very good friend, English friend as well, English Jamaican as well. And we'd say every summer when I have no chick and no child, we're free, we're gone, both with business. Yes. But 
I needed him to feel connected at a young age because I felt I didn't have that connection until I became an adult. Yes. Yeah. So as you can tell, I love everything Jamaican. Like I'm yardified to the max. And I love the idea, even the imagery of when you speak about the hardo bread and the hardness of the dough. And it's hard, but it's delicious. I love that. Yes. Well, you know, growing up here and going to school here, there was a certain embarrassment in being Jamaican and being Black. A lot of us did not necessarily like it and uh, wanted to distance ourselves from it. And it took for me going back to Jamaica to to, um, appreciate and love being Jamaican. I love our ingenuity. It, it got me back there to discover, rediscover so many things that, again, when you are port- portrayed in a certain way or when you don't see people around you who look like you in positions of power, then you start to believe things about yourself that is not really true or that's not very uplifting. It really took going back to Jamaica and working there to see the good, bad, and the ugly and to embrace it all and to know that we are, you know what? We are amazing. Right. And to and to really own it. I own it. And to see, again, the many textures that we are. Exactly. And so, for example, sometimes here or overseas, there can be the narrative of Jamaican people being lazy. I don't know where that would ever come from. A pure lie to my tell. Carolyn, we are genius. When I went to Jamaica and I was living in St. Thomas, for example, and I would drive into Kingston for work. Now, there were times of the year when, I forget where it is now, that would be flooded between Kingston and um, Kingston, coming from St. Thomas into Kingston. So there would almost be like a river that would take over the roadside. Mm-hmm. And you know what these young men in the community would do now? This is only Jamaica. They would give, especially the women, rides on their back from one side of the road to the next. And they would pay a fee because these women would be going to work into Kingston and didn't want to get wet or dirty. So they carry them on their back and they paid them. And then on the other side, you have another set of guys ready to towel them off with lotion. Genius! Ingenuity at its best. So they were making money. (laughs) Listen, take nothing and make it into something. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So I saw that. And, you know, I saw also in terms of the food and the cooking, people with not a lot of money, setting up their roadside stand or doing their thing to make a living instead of relying. They didn't have government, social welfare, whatever to rely on. So they got up and as the saying goes, take them and make fashion, right? (laughs) And so I really appreciated all of that and realized that sometimes out of those roadside pots, Out of the people digging the yam in the yam fields, whatever, they sent their children to school and their grandchildren to school who are achieving and accomplishing and doing. 
And for me, it's like, whoa, this is amazing. Yeah. This is absolutely amazing. So again, using the whole food thing, it just connected me. I totally agree. And it's something that you said earlier about the going to school and some of the embarrassment or shame about being Jamaican, even the food. I remember when we came here in 1973, if you took your lunch to school and they said, what is it? And you said oxtail, those kids would fall out those because they had no idea, right? Yes. Now fast forward 40 years, everybody know about oxtail. Yep. Everybody, every nation, every culture. So it's interesting that even my sister was saying we used to take the sardine sandwiches to school and they say, who's eating fish? Who's eating fish? And we would just have to sneakily try and eat. How do you mean sardines with some pepper sauce on hard bread? Come on. <laughs> Come on. Yes, I know. But you know, also just going a little bit beyond Jamaica. Now, I call the magazine Jamaican Eats as opposed to Caribbean Eats, like many people were saying that I should. But I didn't because I thought while I intrinsically understood Jamaica, I couldn't say that I do for the Caribbean. And I didn't want to be presumptuous. Mm. And so I wanted it to be Jamaican Eats but including the other Caribbean islands as much and wherever I can. And so that's what I've done because we are different. You know, if you take something even as simple as curry, you realize that throughout the Caribbean, it's different. Right. You know that in Trinidad and Guyana, it's more influenced by the Indians and so on and so forth. But In addition as well, for me, food is a connection with people all over the world. And so, for example, I would have, quote, Canadian friends who would subscribe and who would read the magazine and who would say, you know, my grandmother used to do a kind of something like that, or I've seen that, or we do this. And so, again, it would spark conversations. Right. And it would make people look for what they have in common or what they can enjoy together. And it got you to start telling stories to each other. And again, it's part of the human connection, right? Sitting down and having a meal with people and talking and sharing, nothing is better than that. For me, that is the most important piece of the gathering of family and friends and that we're communing over food and and enjoying each other. And the food is equally as an important part of what's going on. Yes, yes. I wanted to ask you, I read that you started a Caribbean food market and I wanted to ask what was the genesis to make that come to fruition? Tell us about that. Okay, so after I moved back to Canada and lived back to Vancouver, so lived in Jamaica where I started the magazine, etc., moved back to Vancouver and lived there for a while. About three and a half years ago, I returned to Toronto. And Toronto does feel like home to me because this is where I came of age. This is where my grandmother is buried. This is where I also have, outside of my family in England. This is also where I have family living. And so I came back here and I thought, 
I needed to broaden the Jamaican thing and make it also Caribbean. And while the magazine was fine in doing what it was doing, I thought I wanted to embrace the Caribbean a little bit more. And of course, you find more of that audience and more of that synergy here in Toronto than you do in Vancouver. But what started it for me, I came and I did a food market, an event here, a black owned, I think, food event. And that went well. And so six months later, I wanted to participate in another event and they were booked up. And I thought to myself, well, if I can't get into this, if they're booked up, there must be other people who want to do an event. And it was Christmas and who can't get in there. So I thought I'll start my own. You're a wonder woman. And so I pulled together within about seven weeks. <laughs> I just think I cannot be the only one. There must be other people who would want to do this. And so because I have a connection at the Ralph Thornton Community Center at Queen and Broadview, I used that connection or worked with that to stage an event. And I would say within seven weeks, pulled together what I call the pop-up Caribbean Christmas market and got several hundred people who came. So, you know, that was good. From that, I also started thinking I didn't want to have, again, going back to the whole thing where food is not just about eating. I wanted to create experience for people, like a Caribbean experience mm -hmm. where you go, but through food. Because I thought we're overrepresented in terms of music. I think it's good. I think it's great. We shouldn't change that. But I thought food is another part of our story. Again, we're more than just one, one note. And so I thought I wanted to create um, experience, Caribbean experience around food. And hence, I thought I wanted to do other Caribbean events. At the same time, I created a website called Passport to Caribbean Food which has now, it's almost like an open cookbook because it has a lot of the recipes from the magazine. Whenever I'm having events, I promote it on there. It has a whole lot. It has stories as well and so on. But I'm looking for various platforms and various ways, again, of representing us, telling our stories, of controlling our narrative. That is so key. You, when people tell your story for you, that is not good. And they tell the story from the version of their lens of how they see you, which is often the incorrect story. And you know what, Carolyn? It's about power and control. I was going to say just that. We need to take our power back. And part of doing that is telling our own stories. Exactly. And we have many different ways of telling it. This is but one way. And so that's that's my idea of creating these events is so that it's not just a market where people come and they buy some shea butter or eat some roti or jerk chicken. <laughs> the intention is to have it have a vibe. <laughs> We're Caribbean people. It has to have a vibe. Real. You know? And that is a part. And again, to instill that pride. And as you say with this podcast, it's about legacy. That is so important. That's something that I think, generally speaking, we as a people don't seem to understand. Legacy, legacy, legacy. That is 
Legacy. So I hope this to be a part of my legacy that other people can build on in the same way that you have this podcast. But it's also the here and now. It's the here and now that exactly young black kids or young people or older people or whoever can feel a sense of, hey, we are so many things. Exactly. 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 Well, we're not a monolithic group, though. Exactly. And I feel like, you know, when I, you know, when I was growing up in England, I remember this so distinctly as part of my childhood. These white kids would come up to us and say, oh, there's some black people that live in, like, Peckham. Do you know them? The whole idea that we're not monolithic, understood, but we don't know every black person either that, you know what I mean? And they just immediately thought we would have this connection to this family. But by the way, Karen, by the way, that family might have been my family. In Peckham. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How often does Jamaican Eat magazine come out? That's really important. So Jamaican Eats comes out three times a year. So issues, and we do it by issue number. So issue one, two, and three, according to the year. Okay. And that's just enough. So it's not overdoing it. Three times a year for the events that we do, you know, so there are several kinds of events. Christmas has, we don't know what this year is going to be, but Christmas we've done, the last few Christmas is a pop-up Caribbean Christmas market. Last March, I did a Caribbean street food festival at the Ralph Thornton Center, and we were so successful. The place was overrun with thousands of people. I was supposed to come to that. It was overrun. But it was so successful that we did a second version that we called The Last Hurrah of Summer, where we had people playing hopscotch and so on. We had it at a bigger place, an indoor-outdoor space at Daniel Spectrum. Okay. And we were intending to have it again this March, but as you might imagine, the pandemic put a stop to all of that. I must say that at the end of this month, the end of August, August 29th, if I can put in a little plug... I am organizing with a group, a small um, event I call Cafe Caribbean. It will, will be at Moss Park, which is on Queen Street between Parliament and Sherburne. So a small number of vendors, but again, we're going to have steel pan music. We're going to have a folklorist called Miss Tanya Lou. She does sort of impersonations of the late, great Louise Bennett. Great Miss Lou, yes. Yes. So she will lead people in song and dance and so on. And we're going to have maybe about five vendors with uh, Caribbean food. Oh, that sounds delicious. That sounds great. So I'll have to put that in my calendar. Yes. So that's August 29th, between 11 and 4. Now, we also connected because you are a fellow podcaster as well. I decided to, oh my goodness, Carolyn, I, I must say sometimes I do so many things that I forget. But before we say the podcast, let me also say that not very long ago, I also launched an online store called Don't Worry, Eat Happy. And in that online store, so it's don'tworry-eathappy.com. But in the online store, I sell t-shirts and sweatshirts and tote bags 
with the brand Don't Worry Eat Patty. I saw it. And the 10 foods that made Jamaicans run fast? Yes. And so that is, in 2016, I did a cookbook in time for the Rio Olympics called 10 Reasons Why Jamaicans Run So Fast Cookbook. So the cookbook is available um, on that site as well as jamaicaneats.com. And I have t-shirts as well and sweatshirts, 10 Reasons Why Jamaicans Run So Fast. So, but in addition to that, now the podcast, which I've done two episodes, which I started earlier this year, and again, another way of telling stories and celebrating who we are. The podcast is called Love Letter to Caribbean Food. Beautiful. Unabashedly love letter to Caribbean food because we need to claim it, we need to celebrate it. And other people can join, we welcome them, but whatever they do doesn't matter. We're celebrating it and enjoying every bite. <laughs> awesome. Well, I listened to both of your episodes. The one I loved was when the people were calling in to talk about what food they love, right? And there was a woman and she got my attention. Her name was Mary. Mary McLaughlin. And she, she spoke about how her mother used to take the breadfruit and make the curry and this whole thing. And then she spoke about how she makes breadfruit flour, which blew me away. Oh, Carolyn, I can just go up with breadfruit flour. Oh, yeah. I love breadfruit. And I needed to roast this breadfruit and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even know how to choose it, how to pick it. An older Jamaican lady, this lovely lady, she helped me. And then I got home and my dad is like, I'm going to roast this breadfruit. And said, make sure you score the bottom with eggs. Yes. And take oil and rub down the skin of it and wrap it and put it in the oven. Well, the most deliciousness and I also thought if I called into your podcast, I am addicted to cow foot. <laughs> I can't even explain it. I am addicted. And I used to go to a West Indian restaurant. I live in the East End, Scarborough. They're called wow. Times. And they're not there anymore. And so I've had to, my addiction has had to be sated right now. But I can guarantee you on a uh, Wednesday and a Friday, that was cold foot deer. And I'd be calling to make sure they had it because it would be sold out. So I don't know what she did, but to me, one of the best tasting cow foots ever. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, the restaurant closed down and I remember they usually go away for the new year and then they come back in February. And I went and it wasn't there. And Grace, I think I stood there for 15 minutes. I was immobilized. I don't know where they are, but wherever they are, please come back with another restaurant when the time is ready. Because I've had cow food at other Jamaican restaurants. But to right. me, by far, that is, if I was going to give the top rating, that restaurant. Uh, okay, Carolyn, you're giving me chills. because I'm about to say two things. Number one, breadfruit 
the last issue for 2019 that I did, we have a whole thing again on breadfruit, how to roast it, how to choose it, and so on and so forth. So that was in issue three, 2019 of Jamaican Eats. The reason why now I'm laughing and that you've caught my attention with Cowfoot, I have on my editorial lineup for my next magazine, issue 2020, coming out in another couple of months, I have in my lineup to do something around Cowfoot because we've never really done Cowfoot. Okay. It's really good for you. And so, no, but now you see, now that you've said that, after all of this, I'm going to come back to you to figure out how we get you in the magazine regarding Cowfoot. Absolutely. So that's why I'm laughing and why you're giving me chills because I thought, because every time I do something, I try to have a story, a person connected to it because it's not a gourmet magazine. It would be, for example, using that, it would be you, your cowfoot addiction, how you satisfied it. So it brings something else to the recipe besides here's a recipe. So we're going to talk after this again. <laughs> Absolutely. You spurred something. When we came to Canada in 1973, there used to be a Jamaican Chinese restaurant called Wong's on Bathurst Street. And my dad used to take us there all the time. So I'm sure that's where I got the cowfoot addiction from. But it was it was a sketchy looking place. <laughs> like it, I mean, it was nothing new or fancy. But everything on Wong's menu was good. Chinese Jamaican people. Oh, oh my goodness. Where in Bathurst was that? It was on Bathurst. And I would say it was south of the station, maybe two, three blocks. All it had on the front was Wong's. And it was, like I said, sketchy. Like it wasn't fancy or how it is is how it was. And yet it would be full. Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday. And my dad used to take us there all the time. Oh, I went to Harvard Collegiate and my brother went to Central Tech, but we missed it. Huh. Maybe you went in it and you didn't even know. Yeah, could be. Could very well be. All right, we'll do some digging around Wong's, but it was on Bathurst. Okay. Tell me about some of the challenges of putting out not only a hard copy magazine, but you also do an online edition. What are some of the challenges? The good thing these days is that publishing, even the traditional publishing, is a bit more accessible than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So that is great. But, you know, the real challenge is... Um, Public publications are really paid for by advertising. Okay. And when I was in Jamaica, I had a really good or a good enough advertising base. But I find that has dropped off somewhat or quite a bit. And so getting that advertising base back is very challenging. I've worked around it by you know, the cost of the magazine is borne by the consumer. So therefore, a little bit of a higher um, cover price because of making up for what advertising is not there. Right. 
So that's one thing. Another thing, uh, retail. The magazine for the first number of years used to be in Barnes and Noble and places like that in the States, Books a Million. In Canada, it was at Chapters and several independent bookstores. What people don't realize is that the, the not just my magazine, but generally speaking, the retail world for magazine, it can be really brutal because what happens, you have a distributor and they order a certain number of thousands of magazines and they have it distributed throughout their network. Now, my base might be very strong in Miami and not Iowa but they would insist on in having magazines in Iowa when all of the magazines really, for example, should be in Miami. So number one, they do that for whatever their reasonings are. And then you find that what they call the sell-through rate for magazine, the average is about 25%. So every, 10, every 100 magazine that you provide your distributor Generally speaking, only 25 is sold. For Jamaican Eats, when we were in retail, we were in the markets where we had a Jamaican Caribbean or Caribbean community or where Jamaica and the Caribbean geographically was known and important. Our sell-through was a good 50 or 60%. Oh, wow. So that was, that was exceptional. But nevertheless, it requires printing thousands and thousands of magazine and only selling half. And what is not sold is not returned to you because the cost of returning them would be ridiculous. So they're really just destroyed. So that's a challenge. And that's one of the reasons why in 2011, I think it is, I decided to just go it on my own, although at some point I would love to return to retail, to go it on my own and having the books, the magazines through my website or now through Amazon as well. And do you print on demand? I print, I have been printing on demand. For this particular edition that I have coming out now, which is issue one, 2020. So we're running just a tad behind. I'm doing the printing, not so much print on demand. But yes, it, it, it's still around that. And luckily, again, the technology has changed that you are able to do that and have it make sense. Now, one thing that um, I didn't touch on is that I actually suspended publication in 2012. I in Vancouver at the time, and it was around the time of just recovering from the person in the UK who tried, who was ripping off everything I had. It was around the time of a recession. It was around the time where a lot of magazines and printing companies were wondering how would they do things. And my attempt to go digital, people did not, didn't want that. So I suspended publication in 2012 thinking that eh, maybe I wouldn't bother coming back. But what happened? Readers kept sending me messages. And the same Facebook group that I told you I started in 2009, not knowing why I'd started it. Some would send messages to me that would say things like, Grace, uh, we're still waiting for you. <laughs> and a few of them, I would have, you know, they would have had one or two magazines left on their old subscriptions. And I would try to pay them back and they go, we don't want the money. We're waiting for you. 
Oh, that's beautiful. We want the magazine. <laughs> and so in 2015, I thought to myself, let me look at publishing again to see how different or how things have changed, to see if it's possible. And so that's why I restarted in 2015. People would not leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> but that speaks to how valuable your magazine is to the people. It has value for them. I wouldn't want the money back either. I want, I want the product. I want the magazine. And there's obviously a deep connection to the people who subscribe to the magazine. And when they receive it, there's a whole thing going on there, I would imagine. There's a whole thing. I remember in the early days, now while I was still in Jamaica, but the early days after launching it, I literally remember getting several phone calls because I had a Magic Jack number that was UK, so people could call it. Getting a couple of phone calls from grandmothers in the UK, and at least once, I remember picking up the phone and this person was crying, and I thought, what's going on? And she explained to me that she'd seen the magazine, she'd gotten it, and she was sobbing because it meant it was something she could share with her grandchildren worthy and that was positive and uplifting she was literally crying oh my you know and so I, I got that kind of thing I got from other Caribbean people who said we just want we want to support you I got from and you know people who are friends of the Caribbean or friends of Jamaica who just want to be a part of this power I had one gentleman he's now passed American from Minnesota who bought a small place in Jamaica for a while. And he would have the magazine and he would walk back and forth to Minnesota, Jamaica, or wherever he was going. He would have it in a clear plastic thing with a cover showing so people could see it and that they would need to ask him about it so he could talk to them about it. That's what I mean about being blessed. That's commitment. That is loyalty. That is the ultimate brand loyalty that you want from a customer when your thing really speaks to them. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. So what you do, you're changing people's lives. Yes. And this gentleman's thing was, you know, yes, he's not, he's Jewish American, but he goes, you've invited us to be at the table, but you know what, Carolyn, it's our table. But he was invited and he came and enjoyed, and that's good, but we control the narrative. That's right. That's right. And we invited him. So that's what the power belongs to us, to give it to them, to say, please partake if you wish. And if you don't, that's okay. That's okay. Motivational, inspirational words for someone who has a vision to do, dot, dot, dot. To thine own self, be true. What does that mean? It means for me, despite the naysayers, despite the negative, I am just a storyteller. I'm a very quiet person, reserved. But for me, that is who I am. And I've known that 
And embracing it has allowed me to do what I'm passionate about, even when the going is tough and it's really difficult, because sometimes it is very hard. And when you feel you're doing it alone, it is very difficult. You know, and I think I heard one of your podcasts, the the guest talking about linking up or networking, doing it together with other people or coming together. That's not always been my story. It's very difficult sometimes to get the right kind of alliances. It can be sort of heartbreaking. So you really have to, if this is you, if this is who you are, you find a way. You know, that's another one of my saying, find a way. And I remember that that was driven home to me. There's a story of, I think she's Canadian, the Canadian long distance swimmer, Diana Nyland. She, how she used to swim, you know, the English Channel, these lakes. And she attempted swimming from, oh gosh, some channel or some, I can't remember now, between Canada and the States. And every single time she tried it, she pulled up short. And her person who works with her to chat to charter these swimming swims to figure it out, when she finally did it on the sixth attempt, somebody was asking her partner, how did you do it this time? Like, like what was so different? And she says, was we went to the we went back to the drawing boards and our our mantra was find a way, find a way. So I use that also as a guiding source. I also remember reading a story on Wayne Gretzky and he was asked, what made you so successful as a hockey player? And his comment was, I skate to where the puck is going, not where it is. And so I must say for me, even continuing or recommitting to the hard copy magazine and some of the things that I'm planning in my I am skating to where the puck is going, not where it is. Or I'd like to think I am. I love that. Grace Cameron, you are just, I don't even have words. Though I will say that you were selected as one of the top 50 Jamaicans in Canada. That's right. That was a number of years ago. (laughs) Yes, there is a book published for the 50th anniversary of independence uh, for Jamaica. And I was selected as one of the top 50 Jamaicans in Canada. And I think I was trying to get the book, but ended up not being able to get the book because it was so impressive. But you are impressive. Thank you. Really impressive. I love your courage. I love your, I would say, fearlessness to just keep it going Try something, and if it doesn't work, then we recalibrate and we come back again. I love that about you. How would people get in touch with you, Grace? But let me just say, Carolyn, before that, remember that's our story. That's the story of our people. We haven't always had choices of what we do. We just needed to figure it out. We needed to do it, and then if it didn't work, then we needed to wheel and come again. That's who we are. Yes. Or take a chance or try a thing. Yes, 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 absolutely. So I just wanted to leave that. And again, we come from, um, that's my grandmother. That's our grandmothers. That's some of our aunts and uncles 
and grandfathers. We need to draw more on their courage and fearlessness because they had to. That's how come you and I are here. They dared to survive. They dared to not just survive, but to achieve. They dared to do it. Who are we not to? Who are we not to when we have so many more resources at hand? Who are we not to? Exactly. Exactly. You know, you you say that my grandmother, I often call her a maverick, a visionary, a future changer, a game changer. Louise Agatha Bates, my grandmother. Somebody, she worked for, gave my grand first class ticket to take the 21 day boat trip to England at the age of 40 with four kids. And she said, let me try acting. And every year she brought up each of her kids and she changed the future, not only for the children, her children, but the future generation that would come. I stand before you in honor of my Louise Agatha Bates, my son, my granddaughter, all of that because my grand decided to be a maverick, to take a chance, see what happens, you know? And that's what you have done with all of your amazing works with Jamaican Eats Magazine, the Caribbean Food Market. I love the podcast, Love Letter to Caribbean Food. What a beautiful, beautiful podcast. So, Grace Cameron, you are... Definitely, without doubt, Blacknificence and Black Excellence. And I really appreciate you being on my legacy project. But before we go, how do people get in contact with you? Okay, so there are several ways. They can get the easiest way is uh, via um, social media. So on Facebook, I have a Facebook page and group. Both are called Jamaican Eats. On Instagram, I'm Jamaican Eats Magazine. And then I have several websites. So jamaicaneats.com and uh, passporttocaribbeanfood.com and don't worry eathappy.com. <laughs> and then email, email sweet potato press at yahoo. So, sorry, sweet potato press at gmail.com. Okay. And I'm going to make sure when I post this, all of that information will be there for you. So I'm your host, Carolyn Morris-Walker, and I'm looking forward to sharing the next episode with you to bring you more Blacknificence, to bring you more Black excellence. Grace Cameron was everything. Thank you so much, Grace. Thank you, Carolyn. We are great. Pleasure. <laughs>